I want to start by recapping um, last week's message, because I think that you'll see how it ties in. Last week, I, I made the comment that I believe, and the elders believe with me, that the deepest need of the hour of the day, um, the biggest crisis in the church, at least in this one, is to experience with our hearts what we already know with our heads. That is, what is needed is to take this truth that many of us have packed into our cerebral cortex and by the Spirit of God to have it consume our hearts, um, to not just know the truth by way of observation, but as I used as an illustration, to get out of the car and into the water and to experience it firsthand for yourself so that you can, with David say, that your love is, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you and I will lift up my hands in your name. That is the experience of the greatness of God, not just knowing about it, but knowing him. Well, as a, as a response to that particular message, one of the congregants in this church, a lady, uh, emailed me a question, which I thought was worth reading to you. I edited it for time, uh, and then answering. She asked this, and by the way, um, I welcome questions. I don't always know the answers, but if you have questions, you can always email. Not that I'm going to respond to everybody's, but this is what she wrote. She said, just want to be sure what you're saying. And then she quotes, the deepest need of our church to experience in our lives what we already know in our heads, end quote. It's called believing God, right? That's the question. Where our theology merges with our reality. Believing, who, believing God is who he says he is, that God can do what he says he can do, that I am who God says I am, that I can do all things through Christ, and that God's word is alive and active in me. If I read her right, she's asking the question, really, aren't you talking about real, vibrant Christian belief and faith? Isn't that what you're talking about? And the answer is, absolutely yes. The problem is, is that many of us, when we hear the word faith or belief, we almost instantly equate it with rational understanding. So that faith is the possession of certain truths about God, not being possessed by truth about God. And so for that reason, there's a lot of misunderstanding about faith, and therefore very little passion and motivation that truth is to come in through the mind but be experienced in the affections and the heart. We are to taste and see that the Lord is good. That is, that is faith. And when I think about it, this came to me this week, it's, it's, it's like God put a little M-U-S-T, must, in real faith. It's that little um, helper verb that combines necessity with compulsion. You know, I must eat, or I must drink, or I must go to the store, or I must go to the doctor. That in all true faith, there is this sense of must that is awakened. That I must have more of Christ, I must pray, I must read the scriptures, I must serve Christ. Now, it may start small when you first come to faith, but if it's nurtured by the grace of God, it will become what David experienced in Psalm 63, verse 1, when he says, God, you are my God. I earnestly seek you, and my soul thirsts for you. You can sense M-U-S-T, must, all through that. That is faith on fire. And it's the topic that we're going to be looking at over the course of the next four weeks. But we're going to be looking at faith not by way of definition, but demonstration. 
that is lived out in the lives of four Jewish kings. Four Jewish kings who had a sense of must in their faith. I must do this. As living examples of what faith looks like. In hopes that through these examples, which God gives us, um, that he will continue to fan the flames of our own faith and we realize that I can taste and see and know that God's love is better than life. Well, this first king we're going to look at is a king by the name of Jehoshaphat. In English, that doesn't translate as a very flattering name. Jehoshaphat sounds like somebody who needs a Jenny Craig weight loss program. But the name actually means God judges, and it fits perfectly into this story about him, one of the, the pearls in this book called Second Chronicles. And I'd like to draw your attention to, to his life. Um, and incidentally, I should back up and say that each of the four kings that we're about to look at, all of them were backed up against a wall. They were against the ropes. Each of them was in a tremendous crisis. And each of them responds the same way. They respond in faith. So as the chapter opens up, we see a dilemma. Here is this Jewish king reigning in Jerusalem. He's the great, great, great grandson of King David, to put that in historical perspective. And his back is against the wall. Verses 1 and 2. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, with some of the Meunites, good Old Testament words there, um, came to make war on Jehoshaphat. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the sea. It is already at Hazazon Tamar, that is in, in Gedi. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat, and I'm going to stop there. Nobody likes bad news. I can't imagine what it would feel like to experience really bad news. Your boss comes up to you and says, sorry, we've got to let you go. Or worse, he says, you're fired. And you realize that the livelihood by which you support your family has now just been ripped out from under you. That would be a bad day. Or I can't imagine hearing the bad news from a spouse saying, I'm leaving you, taking the kids, and there's nothing you can do about it. That would devastate me. Or to hear a doctor say, you've got six to eight weeks tops. That's it. That would be some pretty devastating bad, bad news. Um, this story opens out with some devastating bad news. Basically, there's an alliance of nations that have formed a vast army, a huge army. You go back to chapter 17, you realize Jehoshaphat has an army too that numbers over a million. But apparently this vast army was, was, was much larger because it says that he was alarmed. I mean, this is, this is news that has terminal implications of slaughter written all over it. And as you would expect and as you would respond, it says that he was alarmed. He was alarmed. He was frightened. I mean, this isn't the news you want to get. And this vast army is just 15 hours, according to the geography, just about 15 hours march south of Jerusalem. That doesn't leave a lot of time to fortify positions, to call your troops in from the outlying towns, to arm them, to prepare yourself. So he's against the wall. That's how this story opens up. Just to pause and connect it to our time, um, I don't think there's anybody here who's pressed up against the wall to the extent that you're afraid of being killed. But nevertheless, we seem to be living in days in which people feel, for various reasons, pressed up against the wall. They're experiencing crisis. 
For some of you, it's, it has to do with the economy and the finances. You're being pressed up against the wall by a bank. Possible foreclosure. Defaulting on your loans. Others of you, you're watching your families disintegrate before your very eyes and you can't do anything about it. And it is killing you. Others are in crisis or conflict, personal, legal. It's happening in this body, and, and many of you are aware of things that are happening. So many of you are pressed up against the wall. I recognize that. Now let me pause, and I want to have you do a little interaction here with me. I want you to think about what is it that is the consuming crisis of your life right now? And I'd like you to label it in your mind. Like, give it a name. It could be divorce, foreclosure, bankruptcy, marriage, a rebellious teenager, cancer, multiple sclerosis. What is it? Just look at me. I want you to think about it for a second. What is it? And if you don't have one, you will have one pretty soon. So it's worth listening. What would you label it? What is the, this, this thing looming in the horizon that has you against the ropes? Think of it. Label it. Hopefully you've done that. It's good to label things, I think. Get your mind around it. Now I want to ask you a secondary question. How is it you're responding in your crisis? Are you angry? Bitter? Are you complaining about it to other people? Venting your frustrations and gaining for yourself a nice little posse around you in your conflict? Are you depressed? Despairing? How is it, Parkway Community Church, Church, you, individually, how is it that you're responding to your particular crisis? How is it that you are dealing with your back against the wall? Let's take a look at how faith responds. Back up against the wall, alarmed. Look at this, verse 3. This is pretty remarkable. It says, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord. And he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. And the people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. His first response was not to pick up his, yellow, his, his red phone and call NORAD or, or for reinforcement troops from NATO to call a joint meeting with his chiefs of staff. His first instinct was to run to the Lord, to seek his face, to inquire of him, which is a roundabout way of saying to set his face in prayer. That is the instinct and automatic response of a healthy, vibrant faith. And he not only does it himself, but it says that he called a fast in all Judah. In other words, he included the rest of his, let's call them a congregation, it's a country, to fast and seek the face of the Lord with him. So his first response, the response of true faith, is to hit your knees. That's faith living itself out. It's one of the, the primary evidences that you really believe something is or you believe in God, is that you call to him in times of crisis. And notice it was his first response. 
Sadly enough, if most of us were to be honest in here, we'd say that's usually our last response. After we have exhausted all other human means, then we hit our knees. After we realize nothing else works, then we pray. Then we seek the face of the Lord. Which is, at best, a shriveled faith. At worst, it's not faith at all. Faith has a sense of must, I must pray. Here is a a formidable obstacle in my way. And I know the Lord wants me to go through it. He's going to either deliver me out of it or deliver me through it. And I am going to hit my knees and I am going to call upon Him. It's a response of, of faith. He wasn't coerced into praying. He wasn't guilted into praying. It was a response of His belief. He depended. He looked to the Lord for help. That's, that's why his story is in here, is so that we, in times of crisis, and hopefully also times of sunlight and joy, are always looking to him, always seeking his help. Now again, indulge me here for a second, because oftentimes biblical writers will compare one life to another life. They'll contrast them to show the difference. Here you have Jehoshaphat back up against the wall. His first instinct is to call upon the Lord for help. That wasn't the case with his father. A king introduced to us, or spoken of, in chapter 16, just a couple chapters earlier. Listen to this. Listen to how he responds when his back is pressed up against a similar wall. Chapter 16. Again, this is intentional, and I think it serves to make the point. In the 39th, or excuse me, 36th year of Asa's reign, Asa is king of Judah in Jerusalem, Jehoshaphat is his son, Basha, king of Israel went up against Judah and fortified Ramah to prevent anyone from leaving or entering the territory of Asa, the king of Judah. So the king of Jerusalem is basically being hemmed in by this evil northern king. Listen to what he does, how he responds. Contra, Joseph had. He doesn't drop to his knees and seek the face of the Lord and declare a fast. It says, Asa then took the silver and gold out of the treasury of the Lord's temple, out of his own palace, sent it to Ben-Hadad, king of Aram. He sent the Lord's treasures to a pagan king who is ruling in Damascus. Let there be a treaty between me and you, he said, as there was between my father and your father. See, I am sending you silver and gold. Now break your treaty with Basha, this king who's irritating me and uh, confronting me, uh, so he will withdraw from me. His first instinct is to rely on the strength of a pagan king. And he's willing to profane the temple by ripping the silver and the gold off of the walls and out of its treasuries and sending it to a pagan king in hopes that he will help. So he profanes the temple for the sake of gaining human assistance, pagan assistance. The scheme works, but at a cost. Because the Lord sends word to this king who is not relied upon, whom who has not come to him, And says this, verse 7 in the middle, Because you relied on the king of Aram and not on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped from your hand. In other words, what was possible didn't happen because you relied on another person and not upon me. Even at the end of this king's life, this is Jehoshaphat's father, we read in verse 12 that he still refused to look to the Lord. In the 39th year of the reign of Asa, he was afflicted with a disease in his feet. 
Though this disease was severe, even in his illness, he did not seek help from the Lord, but only from the physicians. So he's got a terrible disease, and he's trusting in the medical practices of the day, and he's not looking for help from the Lord. Back to Jehoshaphat. He didn't respond that way. Backed up against the wall, he didn't rely on pagan kings. And he wasn't like his father who would look merely to physicians to cure his diseases. His first instinct is to drop to the Lord and seek his help. That is, my friends, one of the truest expressions of a healthy, vibrant faith is that your first instinct is to drop to your knees and say, I need your The reason he prays and what motivates this kind of must pray. And this is another aspect of faith. Is his conviction about who God was. Faith calls out, not as a last resort, but as the first instinct. Because faith is convinced about certain truths about God. That's faith, is conviction. You sense his conviction through the content of his prayer. Listen, he, he, here's his prayer, beginning in verse, uh, let's see, it's, I guess it's 5, 6. He said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. O oh, our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, and now here he quotes Solomon at the dedication of the temple some about 100 years or so before. If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword or judgment of plague or, or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name, and we will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear us and save us. Embedded in this prayer are deep convictions about God's supremacy. Hence he says, you who is in the heavens about His sovereign rule over everything. You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. He knew that, that the Lord ruled in this crisis, this event. You rule over all the nations. That He is unstoppable in His power. Where it says, power and might are in your hand and no one can withstand you. The Lord whispers and South America shakes and people in Japan feel it. The supremacy, His sovereignty... His unstoppable power, but also His grace. Because God took His people out of Egypt and He gave them this land to give them this land that they didn't deserve. And more than that, He called them to build a sanctuary in which He Himself would dwell amongst His people. This is a God who is supreme, who is all-powerful, who is sovereign, rules over the nations, but also one who is gracious and wants to dwell with His people, and as such, He is their deliverer. He is the deliverer of the church in every circumstance and of your life in every circumstance. He is not a refuge for one thing. He is a refuge for all things. These are deep convictions of his soul and of his heart. Do you know in here 
that in the middle of your crisis, you can look to Christ. Because he's who we look to now. He is our temple, the meeting place with God. That we look to Christ who was crucified and now sits at the right hand of the Father to whom all authority in heaven and earth has been given. That he rules over all of the nations and he too whispers. And South America shakes. He whispers. And an army of billions is obliterated. But also one who loves his people and is gracious. And delivers? Do you really believe it? That's the question. Or do you just confess it? Confession without conviction is worthless. So his faith, how it unfolds in this crisis, is that it responds by calling out because it's filled with deep conviction. Calling is built on these convictions of heart as to all that God is for us. But then there's this little last little sense of his, his faith that comes out that I think is also, um, well, it's beautiful. Because after he then petitions the Lord, will you not judge? You see what's going on. He says, and this is verse 12. This is like the centerpiece, I think, of this, of this chapter. And it is the turning point. He says, oh, our God, will you not judge them? And here's what he says. For, and here's the reason. We have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. He realizes, though he does have a vast army himself, That human strength is weak and feeble. So here's this king before his people out loud saying, We have no power. And we do not know what to do. That I think would be a faux pas in any modern leadership book. For a leader before all of his people to say, I have no power and I have no clue what I'm supposed to do. Leaders are always supposed to know what they're supposed to do. And if they don't, they're supposed to pretend like they know what they're supposed to do. But he doesn't. And it is, I think, one of the hallmarks of true biblical leadership and faith. I don't have the strength and the power. We can't defend ourselves, Lord. And we don't know exactly what to do. But, and here's the faith aspect. So he is basically relinquished confidence in humanity in his chariots and in his horses. And he looks, but our eyes are on you. That is such a visible picture of faith. And one of the marks of true, true Christianity. When Paul says, Philippians chapter 3, we are those who worship God by the Spirit and we place no confidence whatsoever in human flesh. We don't place our confidence in governments, in institutions, in people, in Ben Bernanke to fix the economic problems. Our eyes are on you because all we see around us is weak and feeble. That is a confession of faith about what God can do and what we cannot do. Most of us don't pray and seek the Lord and seek his face because we still believe we have power to change things. We see a problem and like, Typical guy, we want to fix it. I can't tell you how many times I have faced problems in my personal life, in my marriage, or in this church. 
And my first instinct is to pray, not to pray, but to fix. Because the hidden assumption is that I can fix it. When in reality, the first instinct to face this is to say, you know, Lord, I, I am way too weak to fix my own heart, much less anybody else's. So we are powerless. And we don't know what to do. But our eyes look to you. That's such a place where God wants you to be. This empowerment idea is wholly heretical. We declare that we are weak and powerless and oftentimes don't know what to do. But our eyes are upon Christ who does. That's faith. As I said, it's the turning point. Because God not only responds, God is passionate to respond to this kind of faith. When his people cast themselves upon him recognizing at the heart level that we can't do anything for ourselves, then he is passionate to act because he will show his power through the humble faith of his people, the, hopeless, or the helpless hope of his people. Look what the Lord does in response to this faith. It calls out, it is convinced, and confesses its, its weakness. Verse 14 then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, son of Zechariah. This is the Spirit of the Lord. Same Spirit that came upon the people in Acts chapter 4 who were also backed up against a wall and they were praying, Oh, Sovereign Lord, the same thing happens when they cast themselves upon the Lord. Really? Not out of obligation, but out of the must-in-the-heart conviction? Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah. You're going to have to forgive the Hebrew names. A Levite and descendant of Asaph. And he, took, he stood in the assembly. So here now the, the Spirit speaks through this priest. He said, listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Just a pause and comment. When you are surrendered in faith to God, all your battles are His. Not just the big ones. Life itself is His battle. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. Now here you see that He still calls them to act in their faith. Faith. They still have to go and face an enemy which far outnumbers them. Faith does act. It follows God's will. He said, listen, Jehoshaphat, for the battle is not yours, it is God's. Verse 16. Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up by the pass of Ziz. And you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. Uh, you will not have to fight this battle. So nobody's going to have to throw a spear, is the idea. Take up your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you. They're going to have front row tickets to watching God fight the battles for them. That's a gracious gift. O oh, Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow and the Lord will be with you. Jehoshaphat bowed down with his face to the ground and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem, those who were fasting and praying, fell down in worship before the Lord. Then some Levites from the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up and praised the Lord, God of Israel, with a very loud voice. There's a little worship service happens simply because God gave a word. The battle has not been fought yet. But they're already rejoicing. It's a, a pre-worship service. 
to the main deliverance. In verse 20, early in the morning, they left for the desert of Tekoa. As they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God, and you will be upheld. Have faith in His prophets, and you will be successful. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise Him for the splendor of His holiness. As they went out at the head of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for His love endures forever. As they began to sing and praise the Lord, and praise the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. The men of Ammon and Moab rose up against the men of Mount Seir to destroy and annihilate them. After they finished slaughtering the men of Seir, they helped destroy one another. Not a spear was thrown, not a not an arrow was shot from an Israeli bow. By the time the men of Judah came to the place that overlooks the desert, looked toward the vast army, they saw only dead bodies lying on the ground. No one had escaped. So Jehoshaphat and his men went to carry off their plunder, and they found among them great, uh, a great amount of equipment and clothing, and also articles of value more than they could tear, take away. There was so much plunder that it took three days to collect. See the bounty? These people who cried out in faith knew they were helpless and powerless and planless, but they were convinced. This is why they call it the Valley of Barakah. They blessed the Lord. Then, led by Jehoshaphat, as he led them in the beginning to pray, now he leads them to worship. All the men of Judah and Jerusalem were turned joyfully to Jerusalem, for the Lord had given them cause to rejoice over their enemies. They entered Jerusalem and went to the temple of the Lord with harps and lutes, trumpets. That's one of the, I think, one of the most remarkable, in my personal opinion, stories. So unconventional. Jehoshaphat wakes up early in the morning and he he forms this um, processional. He lines up his troops. But he's so convinced that God's word is true. That God is supreme, God rules over the nations, that nothing can withstand his hand, and that God acts in love and mercy toward those who trust in him. That he puts the tenors, the baritones, and the basses in the front of the army. They're the first ones in. It's, it's not the guy with the shield and the bow, it's the choir. And so they go and they're singing. If I happen to be one of those tenors in the front as we're marching forward to a vast army, I'm the first one in, I don't have a sword, I would have been singing a dirge. You know, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my cry. That's what I would have been doing if I was a tenor in that particular choir. Or singing something like, we're sheep led to the slaughter, here we go. But it's astounding. They're singing. What is at the heart of biblical scripture? Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Love that created the universe. Love that bled on a cross. And love that broke the tombs open. They're singing about the love of God and giving thanks as they're going into battle. And as a result, God wipes them out. God doesn't need conventional means to free anybody from a crisis. 
But I will tell you this, that how you respond in your particular crisis should show you what you really believe. When it comes right down to it, what you really believe is seen when God puts you in a place where you're up against the wall. And you'll either find out that your faith is small, you don't have faith, and you run away, or that as Jehoshaphat, that you did trust the Lord. This is a lesson on, on faith. Real, bona fide, living, demonstrated faith. In an imperfect Jewish king. So back to your crisis. What did you label it? How are you responding to it? And are you responding to it in faith? The kind of faith that's first instinct is to call out and seek the Lord. A faith that has conviction that I know that God is in heaven and he rules over the nations and over my problems and his power no one can withstand and he loves me. Do you believe that? And are you perfectly aware of your own brokenness and weakness that you cannot get yourself out of the situation and you should look to him? Is that the kind of faith that resides right here? You might say, no, that's not me. I'm not the man in the book. To which I think we'd have to say, yeah, see, that's the problem. If there's a crisis, it's what this lady wrote to me. It's a faith crisis. And our first response then ought to be to drop to our knees and say, Lord, will you help my unbelief? And will you help me to believe what I know in my mind? The way forward, brothers and sisters, my family, is trusting in the Lord by looking to the cross and to Christ and to seek him in his holy dwelling. I pray that that's your, your, your prayer. If you find yourself in a place where you are not trusting, well, I sure hope you'll be here on Wednesdays. But I hope each day you'll be petitioning, Lord, Lord, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Help me to know that your love is better than life. Help me to know in such a way that I may give thanks for the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Lord, that's, that's our prayer this morning. We want to take this life that you have recorded in your holy word which is a demonstration of a faith that calls out, that is convinced, and also confesses weakness.